What is up, Brick Stackers? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Stacking the Bricks. As always, I'm your host, Alex Hillman, and this week, we're taking a break from the Tiny MBA Podcast Tour to bring you a very special conversation with a very special guest, Nilifer Merchant. Now, Nilifer comes with some serious credentials. As an executive and a strategic consultant at massive companies like Apple and Adobe, Autodesk, Nokia, and many more, She's shipped 18 billion with a B billion dollars in product across her 25 year career. She's famous for, though not always known as the source of, the idea that sitting is the smoking of our generation, which originated in her viral TED talk by the same name. She's written three business books and currently writes an advice column about making hard business and life decisions that I highly recommend. It's one of the only newsletters that I open every single week. You can check that out at atwork.substack.com. So don't get it twisted. Unlike so many of the voices in positions of corporate power, Nilifer is a creator like you and me. And maybe most importantly, she uses her position and experience in the business world to make the business world a better place for more people. Nilifer is one of us, which is a big part of why I asked her to write the foreword for my book, The Tiny MBA. You knew I'd get that in there somewhere, right? But here's the thing. Nilifer and I have been friends for a number of years now, and whenever we have a conversation about anything, business, life, or anywhere in between, we end up somewhere much deeper and often more meaningful than where we started. We just have this rapport that lets us skip past certain pleasantries and get right to the real stuff. And so in today's episode, Nilifer and I want to invite you into one of those conversations. We're going to talk about everything from how she and I both learned to seek and understand patterns in business and life, some of the things that we've learned across our careers of giving professional advice, and why peeing in the pool is a problem. Yep, you heard that right. Before we get started, I do want to issue a quick warning. This episode jumps fairly quickly into a personal story that includes childhood abuse. If that's the kind of thing that might affect you, please listen carefully and take care of yourself. Or consider skipping ahead to the 9 or 10 minute mark so that you can enjoy the rest of this episode. And with that, very excited to get into this special episode with Nilla from Merchant. Here we go. So I think about myself as a former operator, meaning I have 25 years shipping products and helping other teams ship products. So I was the first one who shipped the, the first WYSIWYG software, for example. So GoLive, which a lot of people still remember in the webosphere. And in order to sell GoLive, I actually coded Time Warner's first website. If you go through like, what is that thing where you can go in the back? The Wayback back. Machine. The Wayback Machine. You can actually find it. And I'm like, wow, I really didn't understand what the hell I was doing, but lovely. And I also introduced Apple's first web server, which was the first like commercially fully packaged unit. So I have like a real deep background in shipping things. And I, and I think that's important because I always come at it from how do real people do real things, right? Yeah. And I'm always like, and how do we get it done? Like I'm a big like less about process, less about people, all about getting it done. So that's, I think, important from context for what we're going to talk about. And then since then, so since all this operating background, I've also written three books. The common theme through the book is how do we get ideas from anyone, quite possibly everyone, to count? So all those ideas that are latent in the system, how do we get them connected? Because innovation always comes from left field. Mm. And left field is usually the person we're ignoring the most. 
And so I have this basic belief of value creation can grow as soon as we figure out how to fix it. So my first book was about how to do that within an organization. Second book, which got me more known, was the one about how do you break the perimeter between us and them, you know, in the larger world, which you and I is probably why I started first tracking you. And then, and then the last one was about how does a network system work? of people being able to add value to one another without squashing one another. And that's why I came and found you um, because I really saw you doing that in the work that you did with Indy Hall. That's a good context. It's amazing context and includes things that I didn't know. Like I knew your operator-ness from a bunch of the companies, well-known companies that you worked for, but I didn't know the depth of your involvement with the actual production and some of the hands-on work. That's that's amazing. I don't, I don't know how we didn't talk about that before. Yeah. So you talked a bunch in your intro about the operator work, but you also see the operation from within systems. Mm-hmm. And I think that systems level thinking is where a lot of people who have the categorical maker skills, so to speak, they may understand systems within certain contexts, but the human systems, the the bigger systems that are at play are often where I think folks fall short. And where you and I share some common views from talking with so many people in business, working with so many different kinds of businesses is learning how to spot these patterns, like these big ideas that you have put into the world and you've shaped and you've helped put in other people's heads and hands those didn't just come out of the ether. Those came from you observing patterns in work in observing patterns in people, what they're doing, what they're not doing. Is there something in your background, your personal story, maybe not even your professional story, that if you think about where you learned to be a pattern watcher, where you learned and honed those skills to realize, oh, this thing is showing up as a pattern and those patterns indicate there is some system at play, even if it's not obvious or explicit, where did that skill come from for you? Hmm. It's so funny. I wasn't going to go there when you, we had talked about what we might talk about and I wasn't, I was thinking of something else when you first raised it, but can I tell you the real deal? Yeah, I would love that. So I was raised in a really abusive world. And you know that phrase Leonard Cohen said, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Yeah. So from the time I was like between ages one and two, I was left alone in my home for like 10 hours at a time. Wow. And with a dirty diaper on and a bowl of food in the corner like you would a dog. From the age of two and four to four and a half, I lived in a slum, which was where the family I was left with lived. And it meant that you used a communal toilet. You had to worry about your safety in every possible situation. And then I came to America and to get reconnected to my family, my family of origin. And my mother is an extremely upset person and chose to use violence against her children as one of her coping mechanisms. And so I would watch like Child Protective Services drive up to the house have the conversation and then drive away. And I'm like, what is it I need to change in this system that gets that person to do something different? And I think, wow. I think I've always been like trying to figure out how to survive, mm-hmm. right? Let alone thrive. I think a part of me always wanted to thrive, but I, with the initial part, like just survive. And I was always looking at something is so messed up. And I think as a child, you do know what love looks like. And you also know what hate looks like. And you know that you're being raised by a sociopath. Like, you know all that. You don't know the words of it yet, but you totally know, right? And so I think I learned that, like, the pattern part of it pretty early from just watching, like, over there you're doing this. And over here we're doing this. And how can I get that to happen over here? And I was always that sort of kid. 
Mm-hmm. And of course, then going into work and watching people dismiss people and ignore people and walk away and stuff. Still to this day, I'm like, mm, gosh, this is so old. It's old. First, thank you for sharing that really personal story. And I, I, I can imagine for a lot of folks hearing something like that, and I'm thinking about it through my own experiences growing up, obviously very different. I think for folks who maybe even go through those experiences and then forget them or choose to ignore them is, is super common. And I think it's really interesting and powerful to hear you reflect on those skills being there for, for to protect us in some ways, but then to realize that somewhere along the way, either you chose or or had the opportunity to not unlearn them mm. and then to bring them into your adult life, your professional life and things like that is is pretty is pretty incredible. Well and you know most of us we we defer to power because we defer to those in power and think, well this is just the way things are because the idea, by the way, of shaping that seems insane. Like and, and by the way, kind of is at some level. And uh, so I'm being real about that. But but I think it's also, it just makes it easier, right? Like a part of us really does want to be the stormtrooper because then it's clear what outfit you wear. It's clear whose side you're on. It's, you're winning, by the way, at that moment, it looks like you're winning, right? You have enough people sitting next to you so you feel like you belong. Like there's a lot of reasons why we do that other behavior. I had a tweet go slightly viral a couple of weeks ago to the point where this phrase that I, I mentioned in the tweet, we realized we had to create like text graphics similar to the mm. text graphics that are in the tiny MBA because people want to wear it is really what it was. And the phrase was emotionally unemployable. <laughs> yes. yes. And, and I, dug, I dug into that a little bit in this thread. You know, there are some things about me that are not unique to me, but that I know about myself that I'm a great worker, but I'm a terrible employee. The reason I'm bringing this up is when I shared this, I got somebody, somebody direct messaged me and goes, this spoke to me in a way that I was not expecting it to. Mm. Then I said, why do you think that is? Why mm. does this phrase of being emotionally unemployable connect with me? Is there something in your background or experience that maybe we have in common? And I was like, I don't know. Let me just talk a little bit more and let's find out. And I said, I think part of it was that I never accepted that the adults in the room were smarter or better than me. Mm. And that mm. notion of... Deferring to power. Deferring right? to authority right. for whatever reason just never sat with me and that, you know, it informs the kind of trouble that I got into, trouble, scare quote, that I got into as a kid. I was never doing damage, but I was often not even challenging authority, but just asking a question that authority wasn't prepared to be asked. And digging into how these things show up later in our life, and now I'm a professional and I love working with people and, and helping them solve problems, but I find myself deeply challenged when working with people who don't sit down to ask to just question the default. Yeah. Right. Can I, can I actually slow that one down for just a second? Please, let's do it. Because you just used some beautiful language and I'm sort of, you know, so this notion about authority is so interesting to me. And in fact, I have a question in my inbox that I, I think will become a column. I don't know. We'll see, you know, it, we'll talk about that too, how I think about columns. But, but the question was basically someone saying, hey, listen, I want to write a book by myself. Like, here's all the things I've done to get ready. The list included um, getting out of the Midwest and going to Harvard. 
It included getting a job at one of the big consulting firms. It included working for these national name brand organizations, each for like 18 months at a time so that she could kind of check off these lists. And then she even ghost wrote, I should say, but kind of co-wrote with her boss, who's one of the most misogynistic people you will ever meet. She got her name on the book jacket so that she could get credit. And so she says, I've done all these things. What gives me the authority to write my own book? And I was just like, I don't know if you can see the paradox of what's coming. I bet you can. But here's what was going on, right? What she was actually doing was following the checklist of who has organizational power and social status. And I'm slowing us down because the word authority is so interesting here, right? Is it external or internal? Yeah. What is the locus of control? So authority, it comes from authoring, which is to be the story of your own life. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Right? Yeah, yeah. And so here's what we're doing, though. We're looking to be authorized by someone else and seeking organizational power or social status. So that's why I actually think about authority as being this thing that can, if you draw the Venn diagram, there's you know organizational power and social status, and there's like some overlap there. And then there's authority, which is also overlapping those two things, but it's also got its own like part that's not covered about power and status. That is just true independently of whether or not other people see it as true. And that's what I heard you saying, which is I want to use my own authority to influence the things that matter in the world. And if I have to get some organizational power and some social status to do that, cool. But I don't want to give up my voice, that part that's mine, to submit to all of the other stuff. I, You know, all, all of that resonates with me really deeply and I think connects with patterns that I've seen and heard in the folks who listen to this podcast, who read our newsletter, who take our courses, who buy and respond to the tiny MBA. The common theme among these people are to not be in control of what I create or to have some sense of connection to what I create, creating impact for other people is like, apart from the my boss is terrible, get me out of here, which is definitely a real category of why people choose or desire to go out and do their own thing. I th- and I think that's real, but I also think it's relatively surface level compared to this deep internal sense of satisfaction or lack thereof from knowing that you can put things into the world, but constantly having somebody else's hands be the ones on the steering wheel mm-hmm. and not knowing or having a sense that there are things that you can position or gather or organize to make it so that people would want to pay attention to you, value your thoughts or opinions, value your work in the way that you feel like it should be, but connecting the dots between I know it could be, should be, I'm seeing other people do it, and here are the specific steps that I need to do is where I think things break down or people misconstrue what works or what is effective because they're kind of cargo culting their way through what other people are doing instead of understanding or seeing all of the layers of invisible work that went into creating the result that they saw that they seek out and they want to create for themselves. Yeah. So we're talking about such an, like I could just slow down and listen to you for like an hour and just take apart like each of the sentences and talk to you about what each sentence meant to me. But I'm going to do one like larger frame, right? Which is we have eyes that look out at the world and we think, gosh, I want to be like Alex or gosh, I want to, and we're doing this thing. And for some reason, we can't seem to notice that by the way, our job is not to look out there to figure out what it is I want to do, which is not to say egocentric, but to claim what is it you value 
requires you to carve out that meaning. It's not like you pick it up from a puzzle piece or you you find a rock and go, this is what I was looking for. It's not out there. <laughs> it's this thing that you you figure out from what is it that matters to me? What is it that matters to me that, by the way, um, will get you to figure out what is the way in which I can contribute to that, which is different than this comparative construct. But I think there is something appealing about having role models that say, what is it that I'm valuing, right? That's a different word than the doing part. It's so what is it I value about what he's doing that I also value? So I can see it inside me, this resonance that's happening. And that sounds like it's either very akin to or, or precisely what onlyness is. Is that fair? It is. And, and in fact, you remember the story I wrote about you in the power of onlyness, right? And can I, can I, for the sake of the audience listening in, can I do a little recap? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I was about to ask you to. So uh, the way I think about onlyness is, is like that singular, but not separate thread that connects you to the world. So what is it you care about? So how do you claim it? Then how does that put you in community with people so that you can go do things together, right? So it's care, community outcomes kind of thing. And so think about it like the, the drop in the ocean and you can see the ripples kind of going. Okay. And the reason I came and found you, I had been studying 400 case studies over the course of many years. I was tracking each one, believe it or not. You know, I have a friend who says, I read the internet for everybody else. I'm like, I kind of am that person. Like I'm always studying this multivariate kind of thing. And I was studying different examples to see who was doing this thing about understanding themselves and understanding therefore how they fit into the world. Because what I was trying to teach is as we belong as ourselves, we become more of ourselves. And as we become more of ourselves, we belong. And so I was looking for a community construct that was holding that. And so I picked you as the starting story of chapter four to talk about that thread. And you'll remember that the quote I use to contextualize your story was Parker Palmer's work of long before a community assumes a shape, it has to exist within you. Mm. And then I told the story of, of you kind of wandering around Philadelphia, going to all these like crappy IT type meetings, you know, thinking, are these my people? It's like the duck who's like, are you my mom? You know, and, <laughs> are you my mom? Are you my mom? And, and you were going around to all these different tech type communities and kind of going, are you my people? And, and really not finding them. And so you had said you had gone in like business attire, and I'm using air quotes, business attire, like the shirt and the jacket kind of thing. And at some point you're like, this is so not working for me, by the way, I'm going to give it one last shot. And you showed up with your sleeves rolled up so that your tops were visible and you showed up as yourself. And then all of a sudden, like there was like one person in that room and one person in that room who's like, Hey, I see you. Let's go have a beer, you know, kind of thing. And you gathered such an interesting word, gather. You gather together these people who were longing for that community, that place where they belonged, but they themselves, and, and I'm sort of saying it about you, right? But I'm not being like, I hope you hear this with great love. But until you celebrated that spot in the world, only one stood, you weren't celebrating that place where you already belonged. Right. So that you could go be in community. And it was this beautiful vignette that kind of completely captured, you know, the shirt story of this gathering. And then of course, Indy Hall ended up blossoming out of that. And now some of the work that you've been doing since then. What's interesting about how you describe that. And I think maybe how this connects to a lot of the folks in our community around stacking the bricks is how and why people don't trust themselves to be themselves. When in fact, it's the only self they can really, really be for the long term, right? And in that momentary expression of 
literally and figuratively rolling up the sleeves. It took me trusting myself to be myself. Like I watch folks who show up in an online watering hole, they go to a forum or a mailing list or a chat room or a LinkedIn group or whatever it is. And what they're trying to do is figure out where they fit in that group instead of showing up and going, who am I and what can I bring to this group? If I trust myself to be myself, can I be seen as valuable, as useful, as trustworthy? And I think those are all foundations of community and business. Sure. And I just want to be kind to those people who don't yet see it, right? Because here's yeah. the thing that that's really hard. We often talk about it and, and it's probably not easy for you to see because it's what, 10 years since that moment or something, it's been a while. But that moment where you're going, and, I, and I'm going to have to use Mary Oliver's work, right? Where the, the geese are honking and they find each other, right? They honk back kind of thing. And then we find ourselves in that flock that we belong the thing about if we're doing the honk honk ourselves and no one honks back, we're like, huh, if, if the tree fell in the forest, like, did it, you know, like, if, yeah. and no one was there to hear it, like, did it exist? And so we kind of start to question our own being. And the, and the reason that's important, right, is most of the stuff we're taught, if you look at, like, how many books you and I probably read before we finally understood something different was that you, you can do it. Like how many books of you can be better, show some grit. I can like do headline after headline after headline <laughs> of what those things are, right? Even originals, like all the thesis behind David and Goliath, never really. And I'm putting big asterisks around that word never, because I don't use things that emphatically never talk about the social aspect of it. And so they suggest that, by the way, the hundred percent of the problem, if you're not finding your honk honk back is you're not fucking doing your job or you're not honking clearly enough or whatever. And I'm like, dude, dude, we are both individuals connected to a larger set of humanity. We are intrinsically valued that needs to be valued. Like those little loops, those little infinity loops that happen between those things do not happen in isolation. Yeah. And you did it because you managed to like at one of those meetings show up and go honk and somebody went honk honk and you found one person, right? And then it started to grow. And so that process that looks, by the way, random that's why I'm trying to like each of each of the stories in the book is really building on the next story. Yeah. And so I was like, Alex went honk and somebody went honk honk. Okay. Now do you get that story now? Okay. Now the next story that followed you, by the way, was a group of kids I was teaching at Stanford who every single time somebody asked them to honk, they were like, well, exactly. How do you want me to honk? Cause I want to do it the way you want me to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's, I mean, talk about, the systems that get drilled into us like that's a that's a tough one to unlearn really tough one to unlearn and even you like when you just said it you it's like so hard to remember who you were in that moment of how fucking insecure and scared and everything and i mean that with great love and affection right like when we're sitting there going hmm roll up the sleeves like i can just picture this part of you that moment and like, and so I just want to kind of slow it down, not for the sake of torturing you, but to go, every single person has that moment yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. we don't even understand the full implication of what we're doing when we do it. And then we're like, oh my God, that's it. That was the thing, you know? And it's because we finally were listening to ourselves, yeah. which is a slowing down and a pace, right? To trust. I love that phrase. I actually wrote down, trust yourself to be yourself because yeah. as you then be yourself, you also belong because you find that process, that little loop of you and us, you and us. That feedback loop, I think, is one of the most 
understated, under-communicated, under understood. And it tells us to, you know, the the mainstream notions around validation is like, just do it until you get the honk back. <laughs> it never tells you how to analyze the absence of a feedback loop, which could include, and in many cases does include, you not showing up as yourself for the people with whom you could connect, with, with whom you could belong and things like that. We, we betray ourselves so easily without even realizing we have, right? The feedback loop also makes me think about the difference between writing your book, Onlyness, and your other books for that matter, which you're obviously interacting with people that you're researching and talking to, but the feedback loop with your audience is long and slow and often frustratingly quiet. Compared to your newest project, the Mm -hmm. At Work column, which everybody needs to go check out, atwork.substack.com. Talk about how they're related. How is the onlyness book related to the at work column? And how are they related in different? And I'm going to plant the seed of the feedback loop being one of the pieces of it, but I have, I have the hunch there's more. Hmm. Well, for ever since the book came out, one of the things I realized was even if you read it, the next time you ended up in your work situation, you are going to never be able to figure out how to apply it. And I, and I mean that with like, again, love, like love towards me that I tried to write down things that would be helpful and, and love towards people that when they get in situations that they're torn between their values or they're trying to figure out if they're longing for community, how do they, how do they get it where they're working? All the bullshit that happens, right? Like when someone steals your ideas or whatever. And, and I thought, wouldn't it be kind of interesting to do like an onlyness in action kind of thing? And so it started with the fact, by the way, that my inbox is always full of people writing to me. And it's anyone who's known me from executives, whatever, like people write me the, here's the thing that just happened. And here's what I'm thinking about it. And they just like, I don't know why, because I mean, this has happened for gazillion years. People just send me these notes. And this is probably a bad thing to admit out loud, but I write back to just about everybody. And I always have. I just feel like quite often it's like super personal notes of what they're struggling with. And so I feel like sort of like, I don't know. Anyway, I write back to almost everybody. And it occurred to me, like, people write back going, oh, my God, if I had known this before, or if, if can I forward this to, you know, and I'm like, what if that actually is it? And so I just connected those two dots. When Paul had approached me back when he was working at Medium, if I wanted to be a regular columnist for him, and he said he'd been reading my stuff for five years, and here's why, and the specific words he used is, I'd be remiss in not asking you, and I'm sorry, but anybody who can use that in a sentence, I just think that's like such a sweet <laughs> approaching someone. I'd be remiss in not asking you. I'm pretty sure you won't say yes, but you know. And, and we started working together, and, and he himself is trying to figure out how to live it. And so he ends up becoming both my first reader and my editor. And I purposely moved it away from my site, which is where I had been writing for quite some time. Like, I don't know, is it 15 years? It's some ridiculously long amount of time. I don't even want to like count because I feel old, (laughs) but I've been blogging for a super long time. And I did it on a new project because I wanted to signal like, this is all we're going to do and recognize. And we're sort of doing obviously the entendre, right, of at work, that it's all in motion. We're all works in progress. And, and so it's about thinking about how to apply the only as construct at the, at the moment you're actually facing it. And you actually, can I give credit that you actually were like, I was like, I'd been working on it for a little while. I had a couple of little samples and I was thinking about doing it more. And I'd asked you because we were talking about something else. Probably it was this book that you're, you just are releasing. Yeah. And I said, Hey, actually, since you're in my inbox, can I ask you a favor about this column I'm working on and blah, blah, blah. And you said, nobody actually wants to admit they're having a problem, which by the way is not true. They just want to admit it privately, but, but we all want to watch 
how it gets fixed because we can learn from it. And, I, and so you had actually given me the car crash analogy, uh, which I loved and appreciated. And so that is really how I think about it, which is I'm helping that one person at that moment, essentially privately, right? And then I'm writing it in such a way knowing that other people can witness it and maybe learn from it and kind of help their perspective as they go along. I'm a big fan of this model. And it's actually a piece of advice that I give to every creative person who gets the, hey, can I pick your brain questions Mm -hmm. about, you know, their place in the industry, their skill, those kinds of things. And you're sort of torn between... I should be paid for my time, or at least paid is one way to be compensated. I should be compensated for my time, but I don't want to be a jerk and say no. And like throwing up a paywall feels weird depending on what the relationship is. And sometimes helping one person is exactly the thing that you need to get to the next, not not necessarily the next break, but like you never know how helping one person could be a lever for a thing in the future. And so like, there's all these things swirling around and like you, my inbox, whether it's co-working or business related, I get questions from people day in, day out. I also love responding. It's something I probably put too much time into, but if there's some way that we can both get value from this exchange, then it seems like I, I should at least try. And so the sort of process that I came up with was if the person's asking a question, that is so deeply nuanced and specific to their situation, that's probably consulting. And if I think that there's a situation where I can offer that, I will. And if it it makes sense for them. But in most cases, people's questions and problems are not so unique to them that if the way I help them helps me think about the problem solving, and if the answer can be written down and communicated in a way that it helps more than just that one person, what I talk about this is one of my favorite lessons in the tiny MBA is how audience building is really just earning trust at scale, which means audience building is really just helping people at scale. And so building that system where helping one person can potentially help tens or hundreds or thousands of people over time, including future me when I get that same question a second time and I already have an article or a column or a podcast about it, that's just good leverage and systems. The other thing is this notion that I've been I've been talking about from the book of being ruthlessly generous. And I think the way you describe your outlook on your inbox and people asking questions is to look for ways to scale my generosity. And the fact that companies don't think about how to scale generosity, let alone people, is an interesting uh, conundrum for me as I look at the business world more broadly is being generous can be highly strategic And if you can scale it even better, but the fact that companies who do have the resources to do it don't, I think does a really interesting thing in terms of setting a bad example for individuals who then don't even consider it for themselves either. It's, I love that idea of generosity. I I want to suggest also that I'm also counter-programming. So one of the things that's happening in the broader business world is this notion, in fact, Coinbase just is exemplifying it in recent days, which is in order for you to work for me, I'm going to tell you that you're quote unquote mission driven, but the mission driven is specific to making this company money. And if you're not in on that, then get out. And personally, by the way, every person who's not running from Coinbase, I'm like, wow, because the Coinbase CEO just literally said, I read his whole notes, basically said, we are totally mission driven. And the mission is about the company. He actually said that. And I'm like, Wow, that is a very narrow focus, my friend, because it means that I am literally here as your monkey to do whatever with, you know, I can do just for you, 
which is in a super small dome of venture capitalized money, which is in a super small dome of how business works, which is in a super small dome, right? And I'm like, I think some of us want to live in bigger biospheres. And he has just finished telling you that he does not want you to bring any of those other things to work. And by the way, if you are someone who wants to disrupt quote unquote power, then get out. And so, cause he's saying, I'm it. I'm it. And I'm like, how fast could I find the door? Right. And so the thing is, most people will look at that and say, well, I should be, here's the kind of dialogue that's going on inside people's heads, even if they don't hear it. Right. I should be loyal. I'm lucky to have a job. These are great people. They mean the best thing. And by the way, the company's mission driven. It's doing crypto stuff. Right. Which, by the way, is disrupting the financial market. And so I find it very funny that a guy who's trying to disrupt something so that he can make money off people traditionally unbanked or all that stuff is now saying, but don't disrupt anything else. People get on plan, like come here, work for me. Only my disruptions. No other disruption. Right. And um, man. So, so the thing is, we're doing, you and I are both, and I think this is where the, what you claim puts you in community. What you and I are both doing in the work that we're doing, either through the beautiful new book that you just released and, and all the work around oliness and why we're trying to figure out, okay, how can we tell you the stuff that lets you actually be in community? To not think about work as just a job, but to think about work as part of your vocation to step back from that, to understand how to bring your full self, not just the conditioned self. So we're doing counter-programming in a world, by the way, that 98, 99% of the messages are going to tell that Coinbase person that they should say, including, by the way, Paul Graham of all godforsaken people, who will you know, totally say like, woohoo, this is the best thing because it's focusing people. You, in, you invoked Voldemort's name on the podcast. <laughs> Uh, well done. Yeah. And I mean, what I was about to say, like, what a timely example, but like, that just so happens to be the example this week. It's every week and every day that those stories are out there, but people aren't necessarily processing them through this lens. And I think it's so, it's one of the reasons I love your column so much is because you do multiple things simultaneously and you do them with so much finesse and grace. And I know that a lot of hard work and editing goes into making that possible, but I think you you combine the story of the day or week in some cases with often your story, if not somebody else's personal story that is so deeply resonant. You've managed to find the piece of a story that creates so much potential to connect. And then you introduce a framework of all things, which is where I think the, the, the beauty of your approach to management leadership and and that style of learning is to come in and say, this isn't woo-woo magic. Like there's a framework here and it's learnable and it's practicable. And to combine all of that with what you're talking about here, this counter-programming, this notion of for every system that is pointing in one direction, you can choose the system that you're playing in and it can go keep going in that direction or you can take it 90 degrees to the right or the left, or you can reverse it entirely. And if, and that might actually be one of the most powerful things you can do. And when we were talking before this conversation, and actually you, you mentioned this in the most recent edition of the At Work column, you described this flywheel energy that is sort of a systemic default, the, the assumptions that we keep carrying in a particular direction. Sort of where did that flywheel come from for you? And, and how do you describe that? Okay, so funny story. You're gonna and you're gonna just love this. So a friend had, you know, said to me, I'm thinking about buying a, a car. I 
sort of know enough to know that Elon's not quite the person I should give money to, but his is definitely the best, most green car and most, you know, beautiful design. And so basically like, can I do it? And I sat with that one and the first draft. So just to talk to you about process for a second as a creative, the first draft, I, I kind of like noodled out some thoughts and one of the things I then texted my editor and I said, you know what I'm having a problem with is this feels like a consumer purchase question. Like somebody's asking that and I don't feel, I can't figure out how to like plank it back to my stuff. I can't like get the words in my own head, even though I totally like intuitively know it's larger than that. And he goes, well, aren't you saying that how you spend your dollars reflects what you value and isn't your column about what you value? And I go, oh, okay, that's kind of useful. So then second draft was about me kind of going in that direction. And then here's the thing. I sent it to Paul and I said, I still don't know what it is I'm trying to say. Honest to God. And by that point, I had found the song. So I think in songs. So I, I actually like when I have a sense of what I'm trying to write, I actually also picture a song, which is the weirdest thing. By the way, they're almost all 80 songs. So which is just the, the strangest. It's not thing a bad genre to... to be in. Oh, my gosh. But uh, <laughs> but I think that's because I grew up on MTV that I think also right. in like the video reel of the song. And uh, in fact, last night I sent you a song that, that was about something else. And we'll talk about that later. But I and I had. I had found that song, Robert Downey Jr. singing the police song, Driven to Tears. And I was like, so I knew that like intuitively I was there and I was like, okay, I want to talk about how does it you value? I still hadn't linked it to Flywheel. So now we're in draft three and Paul says, well, I love the song Driven. He goes, is there anything to be played off of? Wheel, collide. He actually like listed like three words. And I was like, flywheel, flywheel. <laughs> and so here's a, this is why you need friends in your life. And I mean that in like all the humbling ways that we all learn, right? Like, so as soon as I got to wheel, I got to flywheel. And of course you'll remember the book that actually canonized the idea of flywheel was Good to Great. Mm-hmm. And Good to Great talked about how how you basically, you know, as the title suggests, go from good to great. What is that set of energy that goes? But it was also then I thought, oh, well, actually, the reason this woman wants to make this decision is she wants to invest in green so that green grows. And then I was able to make the link, which I hadn't been able to do before that, which was to say, you're also investing in somebody's leadership style. And that person's leadership style will show up on the cover of Forbes or Fortune, and then your boss will read it. And then your boss is going to bring all that behavior to a theater near you. Wow. Yeah. So that's like why someone might want to pay me to do this work. But but third draft, because once I got to the flywheel, I was like, it's the flywheel of ick. We, so here's the thing, right? I have a two by two grid that I use as the only nice construct for simplicity. I could actually make it three by three, but anyway, for simplicity, I keep it two by two. And I'm basically talking about the relationship of voice to belonging. So you and us. So what is the essentially the psychology of it and the sociology of it. I'm bringing both together because I'm saying, as we belong, we become, as we become, we belong. And the interrelationship of those two allows us to build a community construct model so that one person doesn't need to tell us what the fuck to do, but we can actually enable the capacity, which I talk about as onlyness, right? That capacity only one has. And I was able to link that almost all the books that you and I read and that we've been conditioned on, right? Talk about two things. The hierarchy of top-down management behavior of somebody needs to tell everybody else what to do. And the hierarchy of top-dog behavior that says one of us is going to win and go through that turnstile and who's it going to be? 
And you and, and all the work I've studied for so long suggests there is another way, but we have to link not superiority and subjugation, but how do we figure out what is that small voice within us that links us to the world? And then all of a sudden we have a completely different way of relating to each other, mm-hmm. not as under, but each of us having an ability to add some value to the world. And then that becomes a sort of thinking framework and decision-making framework for approaching something as seemingly mundane as a purchasing decision, or maybe as impactful as a hiring decision, or a product decision, or a sales decision, or a partnership decision, or like, it's really easy to go into any of these decisions with any number of defaults. And depending on what's conditioning you, the defaults are going to be not only categorically same, same, but like the the side effects, right? The unintended consequences are also going to be same, same. And so we talk back back to like systems. And I had this quote from before that you had written down the, you, you can't pee in the pool without affecting the entire pool, <laughs> which like it's visceral. People get it really quickly, but it's, this is all the same is like the direction your flywheel is spinning and the energy and inputs as much as the outputs are going to affect the whole pool, whatever the pool happens to be. And well, this is where, you know, the, I do, I use that image about sort of raindrop hitting the, the water and you see these ripple effects. And that's why I said the pee, like we sort of talk about it, like it's happening over there. And I'm like, it's peeing in the pool. You're in the pool. <laughs> it's like, how, is it, how is it not peeing in the pool? And, and by the way, I don't know how you could possibly think it won't affect you. Right. And then it's just a matter of saturation. Right, which is a terrible image. Sorry, that I just placed in people's mind, but it's a, it's a matter of saturation and the degree to which we're suffering as a society is because we have let a bunch of people pee in the pool, and now it's fucking awful to be in here. And we haven't, we've barely tried to tell them to stop peeing in the pool, and we definitely haven't thought, well, what's allowing people to think that peeing in the pool is an acceptable thing to do in the first place? So there's work to be done, and why you and I give a damn about it, and the work is all linked, right? So. We will not end it in our lifetime, probably, but I'd like us to think about the heritage on which we're building, whether it's Margaret Wheatley or even Gandhi talked about the effect of an individual is part of a circle. Tom Peters was really trying to get to it, although it got put under some really weird marketing kind of language, right? Which is, what is it only you can add? And and unfortunately, I got named a brand called you, but he was really trying to talk to this. So there's a legacy of people you and I are building on. And then now we're building together to do that counter-programming. I love it. I love that framing of counter-programming. I'm going to be thinking about, I mean, that I have never thought about our work as that, even though I know that is exactly what it is. I mean, you, you mentioned the Voldemort name, <laughs> Paul Graham. I can say his name. And it's, it's so funny because like it's another one of those like, patterns that keeps coming up. Amy and I have very distinctively built Stacking the Bricks as a place on the internet to counter-program Andreessen world, yeah. The Andreessen and and Paul Graham cult, the blind followership that that has been built because among them, every time we see a defector, that defector, like as someone who's been unplugged from the matrix and goes, this thing I've been promised isn't what I was promised. And perhaps it sucks quite a bit. I mean, folks need to be open-minded. We've never gone in to try and convince people who don't want to be convinced, but there are enough people who are looking at the stuff going... This is not good, but I don't know what the alternative is. And so it's, I think it's so, it's, it's not just valuable. I think it's important that you know, things like your column, the stuff that we've put out, the stuff that a lot of our students have put out are there to show up for the people in the world who are also looking around going honk. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, when you first sent me, which 
I want to say it was like the first month of the pandemic. I was like, this is the counter-programming book. Yeah. Right. Along with, obviously, I recognize counter-programming when I see it because we're there's a couple of us who are actually really trying to gather together and be like, let's be in fellowship because we need a different set of voices out here. What's next for At Work? I know you and Paul have recently come out of a hiatus and, and took some of that time to regroup your thoughts and look at what's working, what's not. Where are you hoping the things go with the counter-programming, the connection to the audience? What, what, what's next for, for that, that world that you're creating? Well, it was really interesting. The biggest question that Paul and I were facing with is like, what is the ambition of the project? And, and uh, I, I reread every column. I reread people's comments. And I sat there and said, what is it I'm not saying to myself? What is it I'm not saying? Because almost always, like, I have it, but I don't want to say it out loud because it sounds too audacious or something. And, and, I, and I have recognized that because, you know, I, by the way, most of the world doesn't tell me to go bolder, right? Most of the world tells me to go smaller. So it's, it's, I have to sit there and go, what is it? And Paul and I had a couple bourbon-driven conversations. And one of the things... The uh, best kind. Best kind. <laughs> seriously, that man and I would not be working together if it were not for those conversations. And uh, here's, here's the thing that he finally... He said, what is, it, what is it you want for these people? And I said, oh, I want them to live it. I want them to internalize it so the next day at work, they can be more fully alive at work. And then I want them to spread it so that they can go Psst, over here. Here's the secret code. We can join the order of the Phoenix, right? Like, mm. and, and, and then we end up creating a group of people that are committed to living this. That's um, and that's my ambition for people. I love that. It's one thing and, and one would argue bold enough to put ideas out in the world and hope that people connect with them. I think it's another, and I think this is just, I hadn't really thought about, but I think a place that you and I connect on a philosophical level, but also a very practical level is that you got to live it. You got to practice it. Like this is not a read it, go, that's nice. And then back to whatever way you were doing it before and to be using this platform and this community that you're aiming to build around the column as a environment for that practice. It's multiple layers of feedback loop. It's ways for you to process these ideas. It's ways for people to process them with you. And, um, and then for them to process the, the ambition, right, is not only that we're here for them, because certainly I want to show up to that work, but that we can be here for each other. Yeah, totally. And I think that's at the, the heart of the good stuff. Oh, I love that. That's so good. This was so good. I love talking with you so much. I enjoyed this. And, you know, I'm so excited about the work you're doing and, and glad to support it. Glad to. And, and what I love about us, if I can end with this, this thought, which I hadn't really thought about until just now, most of us who are trying to do this kind of programming work are still trying to do it by ourselves. It's like, you'll see one person doing it and one person doing it. The strength in this is if we can join together because that side, by the way, the stormtrooper side, they actually have it pretty fucking well organized. Yeah. Our side, we're acting like we're all scattered to the wind. And we got to do some more formation work, as Beyonce would say. And I feel like just this conversation even was a part of that. So I'm excited by that. Yeah, a little bit of us working in public, too. I like that. If you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you did, I've got a couple of quick things before you go. The first, of course, is making sure that you have your very own copy of The Tiny MBA. If you haven't ordered it, I'd love it if you did, and you can grab a paperback or ebook at tiny.mba. I also hope you're subscribed to this show. 
We're going to be releasing more episodes like this one with other creators and entrepreneurs just like you, and I'm going to be talking with them about their favorite lessons in the Tiny MBA, learning what's going on in their world, and sharing it all with you. So you can search for that by looking for Stacking the Bricks wherever you get podcasts. And one last thing, check out the Stacking the Bricks website. We've got a great newsletter with new articles coming out every week or two, following on a lot of the same topics and themes that we talk about right here on the show. You can do that by going to stackingthebricks.com. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and don't forget to keep on stacking those bricks. 